Hello everyone, Rick Cole here, and you are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We come to you each week from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, bringing you all the hockey and sports news from this time 50 years ago. This week, we're looking at the week of June 22nd to 28th, 1970. Each week, our podcast is made possible to you Thanks to the help of our two sponsors, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support has been crucial to our research as they enable us to access all the news from uh, the sporting world of 50 years ago. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beers and some of the finest pub food on the planet. And now that they're starting to reopen as we move to stage two of pandemic pandemic recovery in the Niagara region, they're right there and we're actually going there this afternoon for a beer and a burger. Last week, we had a few interesting stories we gave you as the off-season uh, progressed. Uh, we talked about that convoluted struggle to determine the ownership of the Oakland Seals, and uh, the struggle continued in a couple of California courtrooms, and we'll have some uh, progress from that this week, too. We had a lot of player signings last week, both junior grads uh, signing with their first NHL team and a bunch of veterans that moved around, uh, some of them in new homes. And we had a bit of an update on the condition of Pittsburgh Penguins young star Michelle Briere, who uh, is still trying to recover from injuries suffered in that uh, car accident from May 15th. Now this week, uh, some of the stories we're looking at is... Uh, some training camp news. No, that training camps haven't started yet, but some of the teams are shifting locations for when they do begin in September. We will have some very interesting comments from uh, NHL President Clarence Campbell as he talks expansion and other issues at a banquet in New Brunswick. And we have some news from the National Hockey League Players Golf Tournament that I think everyone will find uh, pretty interesting. Lots of other hockey notes as well, so let's get to it. This week began with a pretty quiet note around the hockey world. There wasn't a lot of news being generated, but we did hear from uh, one very popular hockey player and we got some insight into how he's feeling these days after being left unprotected and chosen in the expansion draft by the uh, uh, Buffalo Sabres. This fellow will be always known as one of the original Sabres and he is Reggie Fleming. Now Reg is known throughout the hockey world as one of the toughest guys in the sport. No doubt about that. He's also had some surprising success at putting the puck in the net in his best years, although at this stage of Reggie's career, it's getting late in uh, his career at this point. His value didn't seem to be in his offensive prowess, but rather his pugnacious uh, traits. There's no doubt uh, Buffalo General Manager Coach Punch Imlach grabbed Reggie from the Philadelphia Flyers to provide this new Buffalo club with some veteran leadership and some toughness. Punch knows that as an expansion club, the Sabres are going to have to have a lot of younger players, uh, inexperienced players who might not be wise in the brutal ways of the NHL, to put it delicately, and Reggie will be there to keep opponents honest. 
It's not likely that any wannabe bully will take liberties with Buffalo's budding young superstar, Jobert Perot, knowing that they might have to answer to Reggie Fleming. Reggie uh, talked about his departure from the Philadelphia Flyers uh, during this week out with uh, Ed Conrad, the fine hockey reporter for the Philadelphia Daily News. Reg began by talking about his well-publicized problems with Flyers coach Vic Stasiak. It's clear, Reg won't miss the Flyers bench boss, and the bench boss probably won't miss Reg either. Reg uh, actually revealed quite a bit about how he feels about Stasiak when he talked to Conrad. Reg said, Vic was really the only problem I had when I was with the Flyers. And since he'll be around two more years as coach, I'm glad I'm out of there. Reg also said that playing for a man like Punch Imlac, whom he respected, would be a welcome change. He went on to say, It was no surprise that Philly put me up for grabs in the draft because I sort of told the brass after the season I didn't want to be back because of the situation. The situation being the oil and water relationship between Reg and Vic Stasiuk. That's just why it didn't shock Reg when he was made available. He was just glad to go. Now, now here's the real telling part of uh, Reggie's statement to Conrad. He said, now that I'm gone, it'll be great for playing a guy like Imlac who knows the score. Red said that he was sure that he could have helped Philadelphia if Stasiuk had been anything like Imlac, but he wasn't. He said Stasiuk just has his set of ideas and he wasn't playing him regularly. He wasn't going to listen to anybody's uh, advice and he was going to stick to his guns. He also stuck with a couple of two kids, one of them, rookie right wing last year, Lou Morrison, who scored only one goal in 32 games at one point, yet kept getting a regular shift while Reggie languished on the bench. Reg just said, I couldn't figure him out. Fleming admits that he had trouble scoring last season, but he felt that his real value was in keeping opponents honest, especially with the Flyers having a smallish group of forwards. Uh, and Reg actually scored nine goals and 18 assists, which on that Philadelphia team was not that bad. But going to the Sabres, he says he relishes the role of having to be the veteran on the team to whom the young kids will look up, and he wants to be a good role model. Reg also gave this assessment of Punch Imlac. Reg says Punch is a sound hockey man, and I've respected him for a long time, although I've never played for the man. But we always hit it off. He's a kind of guy who's open to suggestion. Reg also said that he has no doubt that the Sabres are much stronger at the outset than their expansion cousin, Vancouver Canucks. Reggie says, hell, we got Donnie Marshall and Phil Goyette and a load of other fine talent. We're going to be respectable. I guarantee it. And we have some training camp location news uh, that was announced this week by a few of the teams. The Toronto Maple Leafs were one of those teams, and they announced that quite definitely, as had been rumored, they will hold their training camp this fall in September at their home rink of Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. 
The Leafs had for the past few years been training in Peterborough, Ontario. That is no longer the case. Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory said that the team had decided already last winter to train for this season in Toronto. Jim says he thought it might be an advantage for Leaf players to train on the same ice on which they're going to play 39 regular season games in the 70-71 season. Other pluses for training at home, according to Gregory, are the completeness of the Gardens facilities, they're what they call the Gardens Hospital, the first aid room, and of course eliminating the necessity inconvenience and expense of shipping all the gear to and from Peterborough. There's no need though to shed a tear for the city of Peterborough who loses the Maple Leaf training camp because they were immediately replaced uh, by the new Buffalo Sabres and that really is no surprise either. The Sabres announced that they're going to use the exact same facilities that the Maple Leafs did when they trained in Peterborough. Buffalo coach general manager Punch Imlach, who of course with the Maple Leafs held training camp in Peterborough, likes getting his men out of the city in which they play. Punch figures that it's easier to keep an eye on the players in a small town rather than have them running around late at night in the glare of the bright lights of the big smoke. Imlach says the Sabres are expecting to have about 60 players in the three-week camp. Uh, They'll also play four exhibition games in Peterborough as well. It's going to be a pretty interesting autumn in Peterborough this time around. One other team announced uh, training camp plans this week that would differ from those of previous seasons. Jack Kent Cook the uh, King's uh, mercurial owner, always wanting to make news, announced that the team is no longer going to train in Barrie, Ontario, and instead they're going to set up their September shop a little closer to Los Angeles in Victoria, B.C. Cook says that the major uh, reason for the shift is that the Kings would be training a couple of thousand miles closer to home, although general manager Larry Regan probably didn't get the memo and he said the problem with Barry was that the team found it difficult to arrange exhibition games with other National Hockey League teams. Now how many teams train in Ontario as opposed to training in British Columbia? I don't know of other NHL teams other than maybe the Canucks they are going to be training in British Columbia. Uh, Cook also cited poor attendance at exhibition games held in Barrie in previous years, but Jack didn't want to burn any bridges. He's an Ontario boy, and he wanted to make it abundantly clear that the city of Barrie was not inhospitable to the Kings. He said that the Kings were treated royally in Barrie, and of course, I guess one should treat a bunch of Kings royally, and that the treatment they received from the city or the money that they paid the city had nothing to do with the decision to move west. Now folks in Barrie were a little upset with this development because since at the outset when the Kings first held camp there in 1968 the team had originally agreed to train in the city for a full three years uh, the third of which would have been this fall. However, Cook said, while that there was a verbal agreement with the municipality, no contract had ever been signed with the city. The Kings in BC this year 
in Victoria. Of course, what news report from the off-season uh, from the NHL of 1970 would be complete without more developments in the Oakland Seals' ongoing drama over their ownership? We knew that this week wouldn't uh, resolve anything to any sort of finality uh, because that wasn't due to the Monday of the next week, we were hoping, when somebody would finally announce who owns the seals the news uh, that we were hearing this week revolved around published reports and speculation as to the outcome of all the court drama that was leading up to decision day next week several newspapers reported the race was a dead heat between charles o finley the effervescent owner of baseball's Oakland Athletics and the roller derby king and owner of the roller derby league, Jerry Seltzer, an Oakland uh, resident. The Oakland Tribune, who seemed to be rooting for local boy Seltzer, reported that if he was successful, he would ask present SEALs president, William Creasy, installed by Transnational Communications, who went into bankruptcy, he would be asking Creasy to retain his roles as president and SEALs uh, representative on the NHL Board of Governors. It was also learned that Alameda, California businessman John Bono had joined forces with Seltzer in the effort to gain control of the SEALs. Now, what was significant about Bono joining up in the group is that he is also a member of the group that owns the National Football League Oakland Raiders. He's one of the members of the partnership, and the Seals' ownership, if Seltzer is successful, will mirror the structure of the Raiders' uh, organization. Toronto Star veteran columnist Milt Dunnell, one of the most plugged-in guys in all of uh, hockey reporting, he wrote a column about the Seals' future, and he made Charlie Finley the favorite to be awarded the franchise by the National Hockey League Board of Governors. Milt's reasoning was really quite simple and demonstrates his keen knowledge of the workings of the NHL at the top levels. Milt said that Finley must be considered the favorite for one reason and one reason only. He has Red Wings owner Bruce Norris solidly backing him. And as most insiders know, those days of the, quote, Norris House League have not completely passed yet, although some of the names involved have changed, those longtime allegiances have not. Donald doesn't uh, just hand over the franchise to, to Finley, though. Uh, Milt did acknowledge that Seltzer's ties with the National Football League Raiders does mitigate, to a certain extent, Finley's edge uh, in his connections with Norris. As all the Raiders partners hail from the Bay Area, and we know the NHL owners, they love to suck up to the NHL guys. And the NHL owners, of course, they consider themselves kind of inferior to the NFL. The NFL is the big leagues, and even though they keep trumpeting the NHL is a big league, they know they're not big compared to the National Football League. Milt Dunnell closed his story with this tidbit, and I'm j I'll just give you what Milt says. He makes a lot of sense. He says, Finley's bid is not as far below the Seltzer offer as it might seem. Seltzer, you know, came in with a bid of $4.5 million with Finley, $400,000 left. 
Spadunnel reports that there is $700,000 in promissory notes, that's the expansion money from Vancouver and Buffalo, in the coffers of the SEALs right now. Now, Thinley is proposing to leave that money right there as operating capital. Seltzer would take that money as part of his financing to per, to purchase the team. Now, that still leaves Finley about 400000 short of Seltzer's figure, but he's expected to sweeten the pot in order to get the team. It's only money to Finley. Anyone who buys the Oakland Shinny Club has something against money. One NHL owner who is also in Finley's court is Seymour H. Knox III, one of the brothers that owns the new Buffalo Sabres, and he was interviewed about his feelings, and he had a lot to say. Seymour said, I think Finley is sound. The impression I get is that he has staying power. He says he's willing to stick with Oakland franchise, even if it loses $1.5 million over three years. You have to go along with something like that. It's not so much a question of personality, said Knox. The main issue is to keep Oakland in the Bay Area. Another plus for Finley as an NHL owner is the fact that his would be a one-man operation unlike the multi-backers involved with Seltzer. Knox says the NHL doesn't want to get involved with the bickering of three or four guys as we saw in the group led by Barry Van Gerbig right from 67 on up. Knox says if you check the successful new teams, you see that one-man operations have succeeded, and he cited Sid Solomon in St. Louis, Walter Bush in Minnesota, and the regime of Ed Snyder in Philadelphia. Now, myself as a 19-year-old living in... uh, sort of between the Niagara region, Haldeman County, along Lake Erie. I had three Junior A hockey teams within driving distance in the Niagara Falls Flyers, the St. Catharines Blackhawks, and of course the Hamilton Red Wings. So any changes to junior hockey garnered my attention, and there were big changes in this week 50 years ago. Uh, They were important changes, but they really seemed to clarify the landscape, at least to somebody like me who was not privy to all the uh, backroom decisions that were going on in junior hockey. For the past couple of years, the largest junior league in Western Canada, aptly named the Western Canada Junior Hockey League, had operated outside the governance of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. An outlaw league, so to speak. They didn't have to follow the CAHA rules. Now, all this took place while several provincial junior leagues continued under the CAHA banner, and it made for an unwieldy and basically inefficient structure for junior hockey in Canada. Well, that entire situation seemed to have been resolved 50 years ago this week with a few key decisions being made by those in charge that really did bring clarity to junior hockey fans like myself. The CAHA decided with an overabundance of junior leagues all claiming to be at the A level, they decided to divide junior A hockey leagues into two tiers to kind of give uh, clarity to who plays for what. Uh, The junior leagues uh, would be designated as the two top leagues, would be the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, 
and now the Western Canada Hockey League, they would be designated as Tier 1 Junior A leagues. All other leagues, like the Northern Ontario Hockey Association Junior A League, the new Western Ontario Junior Hockey League, and the rest of other leagues, they would be designated as Tier 2. Only the Tier 1 Junior Leagues would compete for the Memorial Cup. All that finally led this week after long and arduous talks to the Western Canada Junior League agreeing to once again join with the CAHA. Uh, The main reason was that would give them uh, full free access to competing for the Memorial Cup. But there was another reason that was, uh, while not talked about, probably much more of an influence. Uh, The league would now be able to share in revenues given to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association by the NHL. Uh, The NHL pays the CAHA for every junior player that they draft. At this point in time, the the Western Canada Hockey League had no uh, official agreement with the NHL, so they weren't owed any money when players like Reggie Leach were drafted by the NHL. This would mean an additional $200,000 for the Western Canada League for next season alone. This, of course, kind of levels the playing field across Canada for all junior players and for the team owners, for the coaches, and for the fans. It normalizes rules across the country, and it provides consistent guidelines for all other processes throughout throughout junior hockey in Canada. It also means that the Western Canada Hockey League will receive travel and development funds given to the other junior leagues by the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. The agreement is also a big improvement for National Hockey League teams who are going to have to scout these kids. One basic top-tier junior A league in each Canadian region, meaning not having to send bird dogs into all the smaller areas since the Tier 1 leagues are going to be getting their players by way of drafting them from the lower junior leagues and, of course, midgets. There'll be fewer outliers to go root out from the back bushes, so to speak. So in all in all, it seems to be a very good development for the development of young hockey players and their professional careers. I was really anxious 50 years ago to see how it worked out. And I think this uh, finding this peace treaty that was finally signed for junior hockey did a lot to actually enhance what the National Hockey League amateur draft would be in the coming years through the 70s and 80s. Now it is the NHL offseason, of course, and there's always questions like this, and especially at this time with two new teams just having been admitted to the NHL in Buffalo and Vancouver. People always, we were talking about this. Do you think the NHL's had enough expansion by now? Is 14 teams enough? Is it too many? Does hockey need to be more like uh, Major League Baseball in the NFL and have 20, 20 teams all across the country? In, in places that we, you know, we've never heard of in Canada. What are the other problems in the NHL? Uh, is Clarence Campbell doing a good job? Well, we got the answer to some of these and other questions. And, and if you pay attention, you wonder really what's going on in Clarence Campbell's mind. But you seem to know what's going on in the minds of the National Hockey League teams. 
you might not like the answers if you think we already have diluted talent enough by this time in 1970. Another question posed to Campbell was uh, concerning the Kurt Flood lawsuit against Major League Baseball to get the reserve clause outlawed. Campbell said that he doesn't believe hockey will ever face a similar lawsuit because by the time that the NHL players getting around get around to suing the NHL, the issue will probably have already been resolved by either Parliament in Canada or Congress in the United States. He then said that the government should determine the rules because there should be uniform conduct for all pro sports. Of course, that's what Clarence Campbell is going to say right now because he honestly believes that the governments are going to back the owners in all the professional sports league. And he's going to keep saying this until governments actually act to strike down the reserve clause for all sports and give players the right to choose where they engage in their chosen profession. Then, of course... Campbell and all the other sports owners and commissioners will be whining that the damn government should mind its own business and leave sports to the uh, to the sportsmen. He then finished off uh, with this curious statement about why hockey, above all other sports, needs the reserve clause. He said hockey needs the clause because without it, professional hockey can't develop its farm system. It's not like other sports where players are provided by the taxpayers through the contributions to colleges. Our final bit of news this week is not earth-shaking, but it was a bit of fun anyway. It comes to us from Woodbridge, Ontario, just north of Toronto, and that's where the swanky Board of Trade Country Club is located and where the American Airlines National Hockey League Players Golf Tournament was held this past weekend 50 years ago. The event was truly a who's who of the NHL as each National Hockey League club sent two two-man teams to the event. They were to be played in playing in pairs there were prizes for the best individual gross and handicap scores as well as the team scores using both players handicaps it was a lot of fun and it was a three-day event they treated it like like a, a professional golf tournament although the golfing itself was not anywhere near the uh, professional level at least for most players in fact you could say that the golf pretty well took a back seat to the most attention given to all the hockey celebrities in attendance. Garnering the most headlines and all of the attention was the young superstar of the Boston Bruins, Bobby Orr. It wasn't Bobby's golf that uh, had everybody looking at him. Uh, He's still learning the game, but he's picking it up quickly. Rather, it was the huge crowds of never less than 100, mostly young females, that trailed around the course each day. Of course, there were all the requisite interviews and all the canned answers that professional athletes are so well-trained to provide in these days, and they were doing a good job of that uh, back 50 years ago as well. Uh, There was very little newsworthy content that came out of that stuff. Uh, It seems, though, everyone had a grand time, and some of the players revealed golfing talent heretofore unknown. The big winners of the weekend were the Detroit Red Wing duo of Frank Mahovlich and Gary Bergman. They took the top honors in that two-man team competition, 
Uh, and Big Frank was even the big winner of the final day as he won a car by coming within two feet of the cup on the 16th hole in that closest to the pin contest. Ironically for Frank, it was the only green that Frank hit in regulation all day. Both the Big M and Bergman are 10 handicappers, and that's what gave them the tournament. The two won $5,000 first prize, and they donated it to Variety Village, which is a kids' charity in Toronto. In second place, at least the Oakland Seals were successful in something as their two veterans, Billy Hickey and Harry Howell, teamed up to finish in the uh, runner-up position, four strokes back of Bergman and Mahavlich, and they earned $3,000 for their efforts. There was a tie for third place, and once again, an expansion team came in there. Red Berenson and Timmy Ecclestone of the St. Louis Blues tied it up with the Penguins, Les Binkley and Ken Schinkel. It was a great weekend. There was some good money made for charity, and a good time was had by all. And that, folks, is our show for this week, an abbreviated show with not a lot of hockey news. And, of course, there'll be less coming along, but we have some uh, interesting stuff planned for the rest of the summer. But what have we learned this time around? Well, we learned that uh, Reggie Fleming uh, is a proud man, and he talked about how he felt about his time with the Philadelphia Flyers and why he's excited to be going to Buffalo with the new Sabres. There was, of course, some more news around the Oakland Seals franchise. More speculation, I guess, than anything else. But we began to get an idea who the favorite favorite is to get the team and why. And we learned of the changes to uh, Canadian junior hockey system. Very basic changes to this system in Canada, which is the chief development ground for National Hockey League players. It can't help but improve the chances for good young players to increase their hockey knowledge, skills, and abilities. As for next week's uh, show, we're still working on exactly what format that's going to take. I think there'll still be some news about the Oakland Seals to digest as they finally get clarity on the ownership situation, we hope. Uh, We also uh, will report a bit about Perry Sound Ontario honoring one of their favorite sons. We'll have a couple updates on the condition of Michelle Briere. And uh, what we're really hoping to start into is providing some excerpts from a series of interviews we did over the winter with some great uh, hockey people, broadcasters, hockey history people. And I think it's going to prove to be very, very interesting. And I think we'll have much, much more as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all of his hard work. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group Rural Alberta Advantage provides our intro and exit music, and we're hoping very soon they'll be able to get back to putting concerts on the road. Check them out if they come to your city. Uh, Other musical pieces and sound effects in our podcast come from the expertise of Andy Cole. Our research comes from files of the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Council of Council of Dads podcast hosted by Andy Cole and Cole Osborne as they take a deep dive each week into the popular TV series, 
Council of Dads. It's a pretty interesting uh, podcast, a lot of humor, and uh, something the fans of the show, I think, would find extremely interesting. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And now we're actually on YouTube as well. Just search 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We enjoy bringing this to you each and every week, boys and girls. And we have uh, some exciting additions in the work, as we've talked about. And uh, on that note, I think we'll just say goodbye, and we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.